This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. What the American people in this country need, they need somebody that is unabashed and that has the courage and the conviction to stand up for them and to call out the rigging of this system. But if you do, it forces you to silo into either being a Republican or a Democrat or a functional Republican or a functional Democrat. That is the the bind, I think, that we have at the moment. And the Democrats are doing a pretty crappy job. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. You just don't give up, just don't give up. And now... Janice Graham. And and good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us here tonight at Our Common Ground. Nobody else is a common ground. It's Our Common Ground. I'm glad to be back and and hope that uh, you have enjoyed uh, our offerings of rebroadcast that I believe were important for us to rehash, rehear uh, for liberation and learning in a tough time in America. For those of you who are listening on your smart devices and you'd like to join us in our chat room, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash O-C-G. And thank you once again for being with us. Um, It is a very serious, a very trying, and a very treacherous America we find ourselves in coming into this broadcast uh, tonight. Uh, Questions on foreign affairs, questions on domestic terrorism, questions on government insufficiency and questions of still as we have over and over in these broadcasts articulated the lack of a workable, successful, effective, and strategically competent 
political infrastructure, and I still say those things. Um, <clears throat> want to remind you that you and your families need to continue a safety protocol in regard to the COVID-19 pandemic. We, friends, are still in a pandemic, and it is surging. If you live in states where masks are being challenged as a way of protecting yourself, you've got to stand back and say, screw it. I'm masking up. My family's masking up. And if your children are attending schools where masks are not mandated, I am not a doctor. I am not an epidemiologist. I am not a public health expert of any kind, but I would remind you that your children should be doubly protected, and that is a mask, and if you can, a face shield. Um, as they go into these schools where your governors and your legislators are playing uh political games with the lives of your children. If you have elders in your family and in your household, uh, you should be very careful. And many people have really forgotten about the idea of um, disinfection of surfaces and packages, etc. And I think we have got to go back to the beginning uh, to the extent that we can isolate ourselves from the harm that others may present to to us. So that is a note for tonight. My second note, and the reason uh, we have focused uh, this particular episode of Our Common Ground on the issue of uh, the failing democracy, and I have been warning uh, for more than 25 years that democracy is in this country, in this united snakes of America, is fragile. It is not coveted. We are not living in the country that you think we live in, that you find in your media, that you see in your movies, that you read uh, in magazines that you hear in hip-hop hip and rap and uh, um, contemporary music, you are living in a country where life as you know it is not guaranteed. You can read any newspaper, listen to any podcast, and understand that there is no promise, there is no commitment, and there is no satisfaction around the issue of democracy in this country. We have not learned that the only way that we keep the small and fragile freedoms that we enjoy as citizens, especially as black citizens, is that we are vigil, that we are ready to resist, and that we are engaged in a way that challenges the realities of the systems in which we live. 
So tonight at our common ground, we're we're really pleased to uh, have with us uh, someone who has been in the cortex of the issues of democracy and the issues of understanding authoritarianism and fascism and how democratic republics fall. And he is Dr. Dejean Rees-Bajalan. He is, uh, let me tell you a little about him because he's a heavy brother, I'm telling you. Um, He is a British-Kurdish academic who teaches Middle Eastern and World History at Missouri State University in Springfield, uh, Illinois. I'm I'm, I'm sorry, Missouri. Uh, He holds a doctorate from the University of Oxford, where his research has focused primarily on the origins of Kurdish nationalism. And we're really excited to talk to him about the kinds of nationalism that has permeated uh, the U.S. over the last 25 years. In addition to his scholarship, DeGene is a reader at Zero Books, has written for a variety of left-wing publications, including Open Democracy and Jacobin, and is a regular contributor as well as an occasional producer on my favorite podcast, this is Revolution Podcast with Jason Miles and Pascal Robert. And we are so pleased to have, uh, I am going to be calling him Dejean, but he is Dr. Dejean Bajalan. Dejean, thank you so very much for joining us on Our Common Ground. I'm really excited to have you, brother. Well, thank you very much. I am deeply honored by the invitation, and I'm looking forward to our uh, conversation this evening. I've been looking forward uh, to it ever since you invited me on the show. Well, I've been, um, you know, you really caught my attention uh, some months back because I think that your understanding of Kurdish nationalism is so relevant to what we in the black community need to understand about white nationalism. And it has also occurred to me that, as with the Kurds, the United States has always underestimated the power of religion and culture in its wars and in in its uh, challenges against uh, other uh, groups and countries, and, and I really want to to get into that. But first I want to ask you, you, you are a Canadian uh, uh, citizen, is that correct? Am I right? A British, a British citizen. Oh, you are a Brit, okay, okay, so now I got it right. Uh, what What led you to study Mid-Eastern history, culture, and give us your reflections about how it is really reflected in what's happening as you see it in the United States. Sure. Well, um, I was born in Great Britain in the United Kingdom, but my father 
was an immigrant to Great Britain from uh, from Iraq. He was a, a, a Kurd uh, from Iraq. He had studied in the university, and in the 70s, he moved to the United Kingdom, you know, uh, for a job to work in the National Health Service. He was a medical doctor. And, uh, you know, growing up, I always learned about um, my uh, family's roots, our... Um, you know, our history, the history of the Kurdish people, which is a history of uh, repression, violence, and resistance to that oppression. That oppression has been at the hands of, uh, uh, of Turks, Persians, Arabs, and Kurds have sought to, you know, assert their identity and their uh, human rights and their human dignity in face of those uh, sort of oppressive political orders which has sought to destroy the Kurdish language, destroy Kurdish culture, and physically murder and kill uh, uh, Kurdish people in many parts, you know, in, 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 across the Middle East. The Kurds inhabit a homeland which is currently, thanks to the machinations of uh, European imperialists following the end of the First World War, is divided between the nation-states of Turkey, the nation-state of Iraq, the nation-state of Iran, and the nation-state of Syria. And, you know, Kurds have, uh, have since the end of the First World War, sought to resist, you know, uh, assimilation, brutalization, and colonization at the hands of their oppressor nations, which in many cases were backed up and supported by the imperial powers of the West, you know, uh, at one time Great Britain, but since then, uh, you know the United States, which has which has often served to support and guarantee these countries, and basically, you know, uh, allow them to do what they want to the Kurdish community without any kind of uh, 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 repercussions. So I was brought up in that tradition, which obviously, as you might imagine, uh, sort of generated an interest in me in studying about not only the Kurdish people but about the Middle East, the history of the region how it came to be, how Middle Eastern people, uh, you know, predominantly Muslim people, but also a, a region where there are Christians, Jews, other religious minorities, you know, why are they, you know, uh, excluded and looked down upon in the West? You know, what is the, you know, what is the connections between this? Or how have, you know, uh, how has culture, economics, politics shaped the relationship between the Western imperial powers and the peoples of the Middle East, and you know what is that story? And of course, I'm sure to an American audience, this is an important story as well, because the story of the uh, last 20 years has been very much a story in which the United States has been uh, militarily engaged in uh, in the Middle East, in places, most notably Afghanistan and Iraq, but also in Syria, in, in, uh, in the Gulf, uh, in the Gulf region. Uh, and, you know, indirectly in places like Israel, Palestine, or um, uh, Egypt, or North Africa as well. So this was an important story that sort of I became interested in due to my family history, due to my connections with uh, uh, with Iraqi Kurdistan, with, uh, and you know, uh, basically this is what sort of led me on the path to study this at an academic level, and I had the good fortune to, uh, you know, have the circumstances uh, and uh, family support to help me pursue this, and you know, eventually I managed to get my doctorate, uh, and you know, got a job here in the great state of Missouri. 
<laughs> wow, that that's that's quite a journey. Uh, I, I I I I can see uh, how it has led you um, uh, to your studies, but to what extent are mm-hmm. your students looking for, from you for you to mold their understanding? And are, are most of your students graduate students or undergraduate? Well, uh, Missouri State University is an interesting institution, which I'm very proud to work for. You know, a lot of academics uh, are excited about working at somewhere like Harvard or an Ivy League university where they get to, you know, have all these resources, sip champagne, have luxurious offices, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and and basically live the good life, go on the television, you know, bloviate on the Bill Marshall or what have you, and uh, but have no connection with uh, like the, the, the people of the society, the working and middle class that make up the majority of the society. They just deal with elites. And I, you know, I did my doctorate at an elite institution in, in the United Kingdom, these type of students, and they had lived a very kind of international jet set life. And in Missouri State, the majority of my students are uh, poor or middle class white kids from uh, across the state of Missouri. There are some some people coming from the minority communities, but it's mostly poor white kids. And uh, many of them are the f- first-generation college students. And, um, uh, m- you know, many of them are training to be high school teachers. And, uh, you know, I ha- I, uh, a lot of them have family who have been, been in the Middle East, who have fought in the wars that the United States has prosecuted in the Middle East, no relatives who were wounded, uh, killed even, uh, people who are suffering psychological damage from these wars. And so, you know, there are many students who are interested in in the Middle East. Uh, I always make a joke at the beginning of my classes when I teach Middle Eastern history. I'm like, well, Americans, you're in a parochial people, you know, Uh, you don't know much about the world. It's important that you learn at the very least a little bit about the countries that you plan to bomb. And there, you know, you get a, a laugh at that. But there's a kind of truth to that, because you know, a lot of these places you hear about on the news, you don't really have any context for understanding them, uh, the both the internal history of those countries, uh, as well as the history of the United States' relationship with those countries. So the majority of my students are kind of coming with very little idea about the Middle East, other than what they've learned in video games or in movies or. Uh, or if they listen to the news, the news. So a lot of my job is trying to trying to convince them that some of the stereotypes that they hear about the Middle East and Islamic world are just not true. And there's a rich society with you know with you know culture, history, politics that is worth understanding, worth learning about, and worth respecting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I would imagine that in your life, synthesizing both your experience and your studies, that you would have landed in the middle of uh, left politics in United States in the United States, understanding imperialism as a core uh, of 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 that of your of, of your, your political journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit about how uh, what you know, what you've studied, uh, 
uh, has lended itself to understanding the import of independent and left politics in the United States. Yeah, I would say that my uh, – I guess I would say the, the lesson I've – what I've taken away from my studies and what pushes me towards the left side of politics is the complexity and the history uh, – the complexity and the mechanism through which you know, exploitation and violence takes place where the exploitation and brutalization of the Kurdish people took place, what were the reasons for that? You know, there is a, there's, a, there's an argument that you will hear from, uh, you know, I don't speak for all Kurdish people. Kurdish people have many different perspectives on everything. But you'll hear arguments from some Kurdish people is that Persians, Arabs, Turks, they oppress us because they hate us, because they look down on us for our culture, they hate our, for racial reasons or what have you. Uh, but, you know, the reality is that the story is a lot more complicated, uh, complicated than that. And underlying the motivations that you know people state for the violence that takes place within within these countries is the economic system that uh, that uh, serves to make this kind of racialized nationalist politics that is exclusionary, that is cruel, and often leads to violence. There's an economic system behind that. And that economic system uh, promotes imperialism, war, and violence. And that economic system has a name. It's capitalism. And uh, seeing that within the context of the Middle East, the exploitation of oil, the exploitation of human resources, uh, agriculture, uh, the, the, the theft of land, uh, the, the corruption, I see that part uh, of, of a global system that's pushed me towards the left side of politics. So when I moved to the United States, I did everything I could do to try and learn about, you know, uh, about the specific conditions that exist in the United States, and I see a lot of parallels. And you know, I'm not saying you know every aspect of capitalism is bad, but the more, so, but capitalism uh, as an unrestrained force as it is in today's world. Is destructive. Perhaps some kind of controlled capitalism would be uh, useful. It's like fire. You know, if you have fire in your fireplace and you contain it and you control it, it can be useful. But if you just let water burn your house down, and that's what we're seeing in the world today. And all these struggles around the world uh, are connected to one another in very concrete ways. For example, I'm sure many of your listeners are uh, familiar with the uh, issue of police brutality in the United States. Well, what people may not be so aware of is, is the fact that many police, uh, uh, um, police forces in the United States get trained by the Israeli uh, um, uh, security services. So we see like very concrete connections in, these kind, uh, in the kind of global system of, uh, of capitalism and the state system that supports that global capitalism in a very real way and in a very concrete way uh, many of the people you are struggling against in the United States are the same people that the working and poor people of the Middle East are struggling against. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that uh, we talk about here a lot is the idea that um, there is race and there is class and there is class in class components inside of the racial component of mm-hmm. people who are oppressed in this this country. 
and one of the, uh, the one of the things that we have not been able to do at, at well in this country in both human and civil rights um, movements um, and and in you know and I've been doing this for 34 years and even inside this discourse is to get people to understand and to be able to translate how a capitalist system operates in their lives because there are many working class people, many poor people really believe that the government is it and that's what's controlling everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not being able to connect the dots between uh, the capitalist institutions and culture and their daily lives, where they live, how they how they put food on their table, and how they educate their children, et cetera, et cetera. So l- let's talk about, uh, DeGene, a little bit of how that translation has to happen. Um, you know, uh, for instance, I think that, uh, many people believe that the way in which the credit scoring system in this country is simply a matter of what the government decided, and and we know that that is not true. But the way in which that system affects their lives and embeds oppressive elements into their lives is is a translation that people need to make. Banks, uh, where banks are located, the policies of banks, and in the last 25 years, the idea that the capitalist system has set up banks with some black people behind the, behind the boardroom and call it black banks, and we think that those are freedom banks and they are somehow different from Citibank. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk to talk to us a lot uh, about some of those elements that people really need to understand. That's an excellent point and an excellent uh, uh, question to to focus on. I actually often try to explain the difference between state and private power uh, in the United States, in the, at the very least. In a very concrete way, I ask people, it's like, okay, you, you're always worrying about the government doing this and the government doing that. But let me ask you, in your day-to-day life, who is the person who has the most control over your life, who can dictate when you wake up in the morning, who can dictate when you eat, who can dictate how you dress, how you put your hair up? That isn't the government. That is your boss. That is the capitalist uh, uh, business that you work for. You want to get a job? The business will tell you, uh, you have to do this, that, the other. You have to come on this, this time, and you have to do that. That is power. That is real, concrete power that affects you in your day-to-day life. That isn't being imposed by the government. That is private power. Now, of course, technically, you're free to quit your job. But what happens when you quit your job? You don't have any way to live. You don't have anything. So you are compelled by, uh, by the, the, the requirements to live to subject yourself to private, unaccountable power. Now, the state, of course, the state does all kinds of things. But in my opinion, and you know, m- many people, uh, including many people on the left, would disagree, I believe the state is a tool, right? 
And at present, that tool is in the hands of corrupt uh, and uh, 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 reputatious criminal. criminal elites who are using the coercive power of the state in order to further their economic and political interests. The state today in the United States is nothing more uh, than a committee for managing the common affairs of the whole business class and the elite class. That is what it is. But it is ultimately a tool. And I believe uh, that it is possible, at the very least, if poor and working people uh, are organized and are, 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 are you know, united, to wrestle at the very least some of that power from the elites that control this country and to exact material conditions that will improve their day-to-day lives. Now, to the second point that you were saying, you mentioned you know, that, that there are people now who talk about black-owned banks as freedom banks. In my opinion, this is merely marketing, right? You know, this is this is a marketing yes. thing. How do you 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 market something to to try and sell it to a constituency? So you know, of course, now we have you know uh, black banks. But let me give you a concrete, a kind of concrete example from the Kurdish case of fact. Back in the 1980s, the Iraqi Arab police brutalized Kurdish people. They put them in jail. They tortured them. Blah blah blah. Today, because of uh, the 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 vicissitudes of politics, the Kurds in Iraq have won home rule. They've run, 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 won some kind of autonomy in Iraq. Yet the same political system continues, and that political system is that this time the people who are beating you in the police station or who are stealing your land, they're not Iraqi Arabs, they're, they are Kurds, right? Doing it to their own people, right? Because it's the same system. It's the same economic and political system that existed yeah. before. It's just under new management. And it's not that these people are bad, right? It's just that the system turns you into these kind of people. You look at any community. If you talk to a wealthy Kurdish people, they will say the worst and most racist things about poor Kurdish people. And, you know, I don't know what it's like in the African-American community, the black community in the United States, but I would assume there would be similar dynamics, you know, where you, you will find upper-class people who will come and say the worst things about their own people because they look down on them because they're poor and they're an embarrassment. And, you know, there are many wealthy Kurds who look on the poor Kurdish community as being an embarrassment to them. And they're not sophisticated or cultured. They haven't, they, 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 they still dress in the, uh, they still dress in the traditional Kurdish clothing as opposed to wearing a modern clothing and things like that. So, you know, we have, there's these dynamics that play. And, and, and the, in my personal opinion, this indicates to me that the fundamental divide in society is not a division between different communities, whether that's ethnic communities uh, or racial communities or religious communities. It's between classes and classes of people in society. Now, that's not to say that there are not uh, very specific issues that affect particular communities, whether that's the black community in the United States and the, the, you know, the existence of uh, you know, racism in American society and within the American state, or whether that's you know, in Europe, in a country like France, where there's, uh, 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 there's racism towards Arab community in that country, or in Britain, where there's a lot of racism towards Indians and Pakistanis in particular. Uh, but 
you know, at the, the at the core of all this, I believe is a kind of is, is class politics, and that's the kind of politics that I kind of focus on. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm really uh, pleased to hear people uh, to hear you say that these people didn't start out being bad because that is a point that I think we need to understand within the black community that the politicians who have turned their backs to the mission didn't start out being anti-mission. They started out in a mission. I don't think we can name one black politician in this country uh, with the exception of the black Republicans, well, they stay true to their mission. But uh, uh, the people that we see sitting in, in the United States Congress who are black, who are part of the black caucus, who are part of the freedom caucus, they do not start out being bad people. I know some of those people. I knew them in their early years where they were activists and they were people who understood the needs of the constituency that they represent. But something in the system changes that, and we can talk mm-hmm. about that in a, in, in, uh, uh, later on, about how that system changes. But yeah. one of the things is that if we talk about the political infrastructure in this country and where and how black people, poor people, working class people fit into those political classes, uh, that political framework. Let's, let's talk about that for a minute. And my question to you is because you, I mean, you know people like um, – Michael Brooks, um, and we were we were sad to hear of his uh, passing. Uh, you know, a lot of people in the in what is called the left community mm-hmm. in this country, political left, um, and many black people particularly find it very difficult to see themselves in that left framework even though if you examine the principles articulated by most of those movements, they parallel the the priorities and the political aspirations of black people who are working class people who are poor people. So my question to you is, who is the left and where do black people find them? Yeah, well, I would say in a in an organizational sense, in terms of like political infrastructure, there is very little of a left in the United States. There was the you know the left historically in America has been you know uh, has been sort of crushed and excluded from politics, especially in the 1980s and 1990s and 2000s, even in the time of the war on terror. You know all the you know all this kind of period. So there isn't a very strong organized left in, in, in the United States. There are some organizations that have developed and grown in re- recent years. There was the Bernie Sanders campaign that brought a lot of young people 
you know, not just, you know, there's a kind of perception uh, that it was a purely white movement, but actually it was, you know, quite diverse, but it was mainly a lot of young people, right? A lot of young people getting involved in politics uh, for the first time. And then there are groups like Democratic Socialists of America. There are some other groups out there, uh, small groups. So there's very, very little infrastructure. Historically speaking, both in the United States as well as around the world, any meaningful left political uh, movement has been based in organized labor, in the trade union movement. But I'm sure, as you and your listeners are far more aware than uh, me, the trade union, the labor union movement in the United States has been, uh, you know, they have put the boot into that uh, uh, institution. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, hi- historically, uh, you know, the, uh, a strong left has always been connected to uh, a labor mo- movement. Unfortunately, today, you know, the left is stronger perhaps than it has been, you know, in many years. You, you had the 2008 recession, you had Occupy, you had the Sanders campaign, you know, and all these things which kind of made people more interested in left politics. But in my humble opinion, it is largely dominated by, uh, you know, a kind of chattering class of people who are, you know, like intellectuals, people like, you know, academics like myself, young people, uh, but, you know, people who don't have an organic connection to the working class. That's not to say there aren't some, you know, very strong points. You know, I would say, you know, some of the most important people in the left today are black people. Like one of the most important congresswomen in the United States today, in my opinion, is uh, Cori Bush, who is a, who I would say is someone on the left, who I would say uh, is someone who is working class, somebody who knows the struggle of, of, of people and knows the power of organizing inside a community, and she did so very successfully and overthrew the the political dynasty that dominated St. Louis politics, uh, uh, much to the much to the you know dismay of those people who lost their positions because of because of her campaign. So the left is largely disorganized and is like people chattering. Um, uh, So, you know, it's very, you know, people can find them online. People can find them in a DSA group, but it's not very powerful. There are some bright spots, people like Cori Bush, uh, but, you know, sadly, for example, Nina Turner, who was supported by many left-wing people, was defeated uh, in her run for the Congress. Uh, So, still a weak political force with very little representation in Congress and very little organizational infrastructure outside of the, con- uh, outside of the Congress. And the reason for that, in my opinion, is because the, the, uh, if you look at history, the heart of any left-wing movement has been the labor movement, and the labor movement has been repressed and crushed in the United States. Mm-hmm. When you say the labor movement has been repressed, repressed in what way? Um, and by what forces? Well, there's been a million different cuts, right? It's been a slow process to break them. Part of them was the process of deindustrialization, right? You know, the the the, the destruction of the Detroit, Detroit car industry, uh, the the you know the plunder by American corporations of the uh, uh, you know of, of the industrial resources of the com- uh, country, the ravaging of them, their removal, their destruction, the throwing thousands of millions of people out of work, and moving those interest industries to you know uh, places in the developing world. 
and that, of course, weakened the position of organized labor. Did you say, did you, did you, did you say the destruction of Detroit manufacturing, car manufacturing? But, but didn't uh, didn't the, uh, Black Magic Obama uh, rescue Detroit? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, uh, the, the, you know, the, 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 there's still some car manufacturing there, but compared to the ways that it was, yes. Sadly, you know, like. I would say one of the best things Obama did was rescue the car industry. It's a shame that he didn't do it for a lot more other industries which need protection. I think, I think you know, one of the big public goods that has to be focused on in the United States is building up that in, in, industrial uh, infrastructure. Instead of hiring thousands of cops to beat people up on the streets, maybe take that money and, uh, you know, support some mm-hmm. factories to be constructed well, so that we, so well, that we my- can have face masks. Mine was a, a side eye comment because of course. it goes back to my earlier point about who really controls um, what happens in the day-to-day lives of people, working people in this country, because it was it was despite the government's bailout of Detroit that car manufacturers began to continue to overhaul its policy of offshoring mm-hmm. and moving operations into um, uh, other countries, particularly for the car industry, it was Mexico and um, Italy um, right. and Germany. So, uh, I mean... But then there are people who are sitting there saying, well, you know, the unions really did very little to promote union membership or empower black people within the union movements. And that is another clutch point, what I call a clutch point, where you hit the clutch and it just jumps and then sits still. Um, Right. And 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 I think that unionizing in this country, uh, a lot of the cuts that you you say a million cuts had to do with its own leadership and management. And one of the reasons that there wasn't a significant embedded uh, black support. Uh, many of the unions in this country had to do with unions. Uh, there, there was a characterization that unions did not have black people's backs, especially do it in, mm-hmm. in, in, in the 80s, uh, where there was a big push for looking at uh, black kids coming out of high school, uh, black union workers getting into leadership, and part of that had to do with the membership and the union leadership not guiding its members to understand the importance of inclusion and diversity. Uh, a lot of that happened. I happen to have been a labor relations director at Raytheon. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I was in the beast of the belly. You can judge. Don't, don't judge. <laughs> but... Uh, I remember during the um, <clears throat> during the early '80s when unions were being essentially begged uh, 
to look at the issues of uh, claim the issues, uh, the the principles of affirmative action and inclusion and diversity, and they were pushing back because the traditional membership wasn't having it. But anyway, that's just a sad conversation on that point. Um, but but I, I I hear you. But here's and my concern, know, and here's I, go ahead. I would make one one note here though. I go. You know, there, there are. You know, I'm not expert on the labor history of the United States, and I'm sure you know there were many issues with uh, you know uh, uh, discrimination within the trade union movement. But if we look today, uh, I, I, I believe I'm correct in saying that uh, black people in the United States are the most unionized ethnic group in the country, especially in terms of public service uh, uh, trade unions. So. You know, yes. some of the biggest yeah, right. black organize some of the right biggest black organizations in, in the United States by membership count are actually mm-hmm. uh, labor unions. You know, and so yeah. you know, I, I see, I, I you know, I see black people in the United States actually at the heart of the labor movement today. But yes, I, I totally take your point, especially you know when you have the domination of white ethnics in uh, in. Um, in uh, you know places like Chicago or Detroit, and, and you know this kind of like uh, uh, ethno-racial division of labor that weakened the labor movement, and that was an Achilles' heel of the labor movement. But uh, mm-hmm. you know my point about labor unions, you know, and labor unions today have a lot more pressures. You know, you have you have uh, goes all the way back to the Taft-Hartley Act, but then you have, of course, you know, more recently the Supreme Court, which basically is creating policy in this country you know, beyond the purview of the Congress. It's, you know, it's making its own laws, uh, passing the Janus, uh, uh, doing the Janus ju- uh, uh, judgment, where base- which uh, sort of served to we- further weaken and cripple mm-hmm. the power of uh, labor unions mm-hmm. and the power of people to organize. So, you know, one of, my, oh. one of the preconditions, I think, for a strong left in, in the United States is uh, a la- labor unions. And a left that does not engage with black people who are at the heart of the labor movement is not going to be a successful left. It's just, it's just, it's mm-hmm. just people talking. Mm-hmm. It's just, just going to be people, mm-hmm. people like me talking on YouTube, and uh, you know, <laughs> you know, you uh, that uh, any left that thinks that it's going to do achieve anything has to be in the heart of the labor movement, which at the same time means being integrated and taking its cues from uh, working and poor people many of whom are black Americans. Mm-hmm. Well, one, of, um, I, one of the most significant failures, I think, of the labor movement in this country is its failure to have organized, successfully organized domestic and uh, care uh, provider um, folks um, in this country, and I think that especially in the South um, and in places like Texas um, and up there in Colorado and California, where you have a tremendous workforce of people who are domestic household workers who are Mm -hmm. still yet to be organized. And... I tried to, Nina Turner, who is both a friend of this show 
and she and I talk often, uh, we have talked about that over and over, that that could have been a centerpiece of attraction and recruitment to all these black people who are sitting uh, in the Democratic Party because they feel they have no other option. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think that's an excellent point. I think when people think of labor unions, or as we call them in Britain, trade unions, they think mm-hmm. of you know, they think of white men in a steel factory in you know Illinois, right? But there mm-hmm. is a lot of different mm-hmm. type of labor that exists today, and you know, people have a model of organizing that came out of the factories, that came out of you know, a very particular type of industrial organization. And I think we have, at least in my opinion, for people on the left, we have to adapt our organizing techniques because we're in a different, we're in a different economic terrain. We're in a different terrain of employment. So we have to consider mm-hmm. how we adapt to that. And it, there's a lot of challenges. You know, it was easier to organize a group of men who worked together on the factory floor, right, who... I've worked in the factories before. I know the kind of solidarity and close working relationship yes. you get mm-hmm. by working with guys on the floor. It's a very different deal when you're dealing with, you know, hundreds of thousands of domestic workers spread out amongst uh, different care homes, different homes, different institutions. It's very difficult, difficult to organize all these people working at McDonald's or working in the Burger King, places like that, who are spread out all over the place. It's a big challenge, but it's a challenge that we as the political left, do not overcome, we will fail over and over again, and it will just be a bunch of people talking about uh, all these nice things like Medicare for All, like a jobs guarantee, like uh, like a free college for everybody. We'll be talking about this, but we'll never be getting anywhere because we won't have we won't have the labor movement that can provide the pressure on the politicians and the elite and the capitalists who control the economic and political levers of this country won't be able to pressure them to extract the concessions we need to improve the lives of everyday people. You know, one of the things that disgusts me about moving to the United States is the healthcare system. In Great Britain, uh, one of the best things that the British uh, ever did was create a national health service. My father worked for the National Health Service. My mother was a nurse. She worked for the National Health Service. My brother works for the National Health Service. Uh, his wife works for the National Health Service. And in Britain, when you get sick, you don't have to worry about the bill. You don't have to worry about, you know, you know get, getting slapped for $5,000 and going into debt. You just go to the doctor and you get your medicine. Right? If you get cancer, you don't have to sell your house and, and, and go to the uh, in order to go to the hospital. We have to get these. We have to extract these kind of concessions because the the barbarism that exists, for example, for just for example, in the American healthcare system, the sheer barbarism is killing people. If you look at statistics for infant mortality, especially amongst black women the majority of whom are poor and working class, in the state of Missouri, it is the same level, I believe, I checked the statistics a couple of years ago, but it is equivalent to women living on the West Bank and, uh, and Gaza Strip in Palestine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this I is mean, the wealthiest it, it, country in the world. All you have to do world. is go, yeah, you, I mean, I think people forget that in uh, the... Uh, 
in the in the Mississippi Delta, in Belle Glade, Florida, in mm-hmm. uh, 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 agricultural uh, uh, rural sections of Alabama and Florida and Tennessee and Iowa, that people are living as though on on the same level as people in what we call, uh, what we refer to as third world countries. But mm-hmm. I, 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 I do want to make the point about um, building an infrastructure and having an available political option for black people. I mean, even if we organized uh, workers who work in the many um, senior citizen care, health care um, mm-hmm. um, centers just in Florida alone. I mean, I'm a I'm a recent resident of Florida, um, and I'm calling it Florida Stan. Um, it would be an immense boost to poor working people who would be understand that voting Democratic, operating from the Democratic Party is not the only option. I mean, it is sickening to me. And that takes me to asking you uh, questions about your take on the uh, creeping fascism, authoritarianism uh, in this country. What's your take on what we have lost, the kind of destruction that has, political destruction that, uh, that has happened over the last, 20 years in this country, starting mm-hmm. uh, George W. Bush. I, I, you know, people tend, and I don't want anybody to forget, George W. Bush was the president of the United States at one time for eight years. Mm-hmm. We tend to yep. forget. We keep calling. We keep calling everybody everybody's name. Afghanistan started with a, 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 a Reagan. Mm-hmm. Well, started back as far as Qatar. Last week. Mm-hmm. Pardon me? It, went, it, so, it actually goes back to the end of the Qatar administration even. It's, it's, it's decades. It's generations. Yeah. It began and before Carter I was born. And Carter allowed it because of his embarrassment of what, uh, the way in which he was demonized over the release of prisoners in, mm-hmm. in uh, Iran. So he was willing to do anything at... At, at, at a certain point, but it was this what they called the Cold War mm-hmm. that brought us to what we saw with hundreds of thousands of people fleeing Afghanistan and uh, a Taliban taking over a country without even having developed a government. Nobody's going to vote. Nobody's going to do anything. It just is. And my fear is that we are living in a time of check your, check your newspaper from Thursday, just is America. Mm-hmm. Well, so, you know, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. 
so give us a take over uh, over the last years that brings us to a failed democracy, uh, a system of government uh, which is fascist both at state and and federal levels. Yeah, so I, I would bring up something you said right at the beginning of the show, that democracy in America is fragile. And I would add to that that it is new, right? There's been voting in this country for a long time. But it's important remember, up until the 1960s, this country had no business calling itself a democracy because there was legal uh, discrimination. Parts of this country might as well have been the old Rhodesia or South Africa during apartheid, right, in terms of the way they were politically structured and the way that black citizens of the United States were persecuted. Yes, you know, slavery was abolished, uh, you know, during the American Civil War, but a whole new uh, political apparatus was established to undo the gains of the Reconstruction era, a political uh, apparatus in terms of the Jim Crow legal system, of, of the, in terms of the kind of gerrymandering that took place, and in terms of the ideological superstructure that is the prevalence of white supremacy, lost, um, you know, lost cause propaganda, all these kind of things meant to reinforce a, uh, a, 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 you know, a, a, a particular racialized political order in the South, which could n- does not resemble any democracy in any meaningful sense of the word. So democracy in America is a new thing. There have been important gains. This is not to say that, that you know, there haven't been important gains in America, you know, uh, uh, this, that, and the other, but it's always been weak and fragile. And what we are seeing in, in, in this current period of time is that one of the political parties is going off the complete crazy, crazy deep end into uh, a kind of like overtly anti-democratic politics, a, a type of politics which basically doesn't care, you know, about, doesn't believe that America should be a democracy. You talk to many people who are Republicans and you say, you talk about democracy, they go, well, America isn't a democracy, it's a republic. It's kind of a stupid saying, but it tells you what they're thinking. They don't believe in a democratic system. And, you know, this tendency, you know, frankly, people want to blame things on Donald Trump. Donald Trump was the grotesque face of this, right? But let's, not go, let's go back to the year 2000 and what happened in Florida and the way in which the election was, uh, uh, you know, basically through the courts awarded to the person who did not win the most votes, right? Consider this. The... Uh, the, the judicial institutions of the United States, which make so much of our policy on a day-to-day level. Just look at what's going, just look at the way, uh, you know, uh, look at what goes on in the Supreme Court, the circuit courts, and the, the low courts. That makes so much of our policy. If you look at the Supreme Court, most of the people on the Supreme Court have been picked by Republicans, despite the fact that Republican presidents have not managed to win the majority of the vote in this country. Why is that? It's because the American system is an antiquated, undemocratic system. In the past, 
that didn't matter too much because at the very least the person with the most votes at the presidential election would more often than not win the election. But now as our politics becomes more and more polarized, as the Republican Party becomes more and more overtly anti-democratic, uh, we, you know, the vestiges, the, the, the kind of progress and the good aspects of American democracy are being slowly, slowly eroded. And what I see happening right now is the Republican Party realizes that it cannot win the majority of the people over to that political program, but it has a very enthusiastic, very mobilized, very disciplined, and very organized core of people who are willing to do anything to win and who are willing to use uh, their political power to shape the legal and political mechanisms of the United States in order to entrench their rule permanently. And the Democratic Party, unfortunately, is completely unable to play this game. What do you say in America? They're bringing, they're bringing a knife to a gunfight, right? They're playing silly games in, 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 the in, in the Congress where they should be protecting the right of, I mean, think about this. The right to vote for African Americans, uh, for black Americans in the United States, that battle was won in the 60s. You're fighting it again today, right? This is absurd. And these Democrats in the Congress can't get this, can't even do this. They, you know, they can't even do a very basic thing for their own self-preservation, right? And you have these people like Kirsten Sinema dressing up like a, uh, you know, dressing up like I don't know what in the Congress and acting all cute. You have like Joe Manchin, who looks like you know, looks like the stupidest guy they found, who, like put his head down the coal mine or something in West Virginia. You have these people playing a silly game while the Republicans are playing to win, right? The Republicans mm -hmm. are playing to win at any they're, they're, price without shame. With it, yeah, they don't have shame. They can tell, like, nope. all these Republicans were crying, saying we should pull out of Afghanistan. Joe Biden pulls out of Afghanistan, they're calling him a coward, right? They, 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 they are postmodern. What do I mean by postmodern? It's like, when you try and argue with someone, you know, they have a position, you have a position, you argue and you try to get to the truth. They don't care, right? The, the conceit of the conservative wing of politics was that they cared about the institutions, the traditions. But they only cared about those institutions and traditions so long as it politically benefited them. As soon as those institutions do not politically benefit them, right, they will pretend like they never supported them and they will abolish them. For example, if, yeah. you, if, one, if, 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 if let's say in 2024, the Electoral College returns a Democratic president, but a Republican gets more votes, I don't think that's very likely, but if that happens... I guarantee you, every single Republican out there will be saying we need to abolish the Electoral College. But so long as the Electoral College benefits them, they will continue yeah. to say that it's yeah. the most important thing in the world, just like the filibuster, just like uh, – and so we so, – so they've totally – there are still some Republicans out there who you know, have an attachment, who are serious about their commitment to institutions and things like that. But that's an ever-dwindling minority of the Republican Party. And so they're becoming an increasingly dangerous party. And, you know, this is why, you know, like at the end of the day, at least in certain areas, the left, in my opinion, should try to work through the Democratic Party like someone like Cory Bush did, 
like someone like Nina Turner did, and I hope Nina Turner runs again, and I hope she wins. If this is the this is the only vehicle. This is the only vehicle that we have uh, to to sort of uh, exercise political power, and you know uh, we have to, at the very least, uh, you know, do our best to you know uh, take advantage of it. It's I'm not emotional about the Democratic Party. I don't like the Democratic Party uh, particularly, but uh, you know it is what it is, and we can uh, and we can use it. For, uh, to our advantage, and I think you know, I think mm-hmm. that's a practical mm-hmm. thing because yeah. I don't think I, I there's think a... it's, it's, I, I think it's real clear that somehow we have got to what I've been saying, Cory Bush, um, the the Democratic Party, uh, Nina Turner, the Democratic Party, because mm-hmm. if we do not, life as we know it is not guaranteed. Dejean, we've got to take a break, um, and I want you to hold on, and I want all of you to hold on. Uh, You can email, text, and let people know that we are on the air tonight as America Falls fails, finding solidarity with Dr. Dejean Bajalan. And we'll be right back. Don't you go away. If you'd like to join us in our chat room, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. In our second hour, we'll be taking your calls here at Our Common Ground. Thank you so very much uh, for joining us tonight. Uh, And I am glad to be back um, right after this. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person with the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. There is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. We're 7th in literacy, 27th in math, 22nd in science, 49th in life expectancy, 178th in infant mortality, 3rd in median household income, number 4 in labor force, and number 4 in exports. We lead the world in only three categories. Number of incarcerated citizens per capita, number of adults who believe angels are real, and defense spending. When you ask what makes us the greatest country in the world, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. What we see before our eyes, the sky is green and the grass is 
Absolutely. But one thing you can't deny, these people are, these people are sabotaging this country. On TruthWorks Network, the best of political pushback. Go for it, Alpha. The Alpha Show. There is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the Wear the red dress. Wear the wings. Shut your mouth. Be a good girl. Roll over and spread your legs. Yes, ma'am. May the Lord open. Seriously? What the actual f- with the eroding of the right to protest in freedom and with uneven distribution of consequences from law enforcement. It happens when people we think are on our side when it comes to social justice simply don't show up. Or worse, shame us for taking action. It happens when we all look at each other and say, this can't last, right? Hoping that it will go away on its own. Meantime, the fascists bill militias. When fascism starts to feel normal, we're all in trouble. All the denial, either from fear or uncertainty, is not helpful. We are seeing the execution in America, not the plan. America Fails, The Coming Tyranny. A 12-week discussion series exploring the possibility, the potential, the now, fascism in America. TruthWorks Network, sneak preview, October 14th, live, 8 p.m. The truth must be spoken more than once. If America Fails, TruthWorks Network. October 14th, 8 p.m. If America Fails, The Coming Tyranny. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I love the lie and lie the love. I'm hanging on with push and shove. Possession is the motivation that is hanging up. The goddamn nation looks like we always end up in a rut.
And now back to Our Common Ground. Democrat or a functional Republican or a functional Democrat. And that is the that is the the bind I think that we have at the moment. And the Democrats are doing a pretty crappy job. Uh, he, he, the Democratic Party has a lot like as an institution. I agree. The leadership faction of the Democratic Party are the centrist Democrats who control the top levers of political power in the party. Uh, are fixated on crushing the political left. But let's also forget what they're doing is crushing a faction within their own party, right? They're, they're crushing, they're attacking other Democrats. And the Democratic base is kind of incoherent because, you know, you talk to a lot of Democratic voters, people who are registered de- Democrats. You know, it comes down to the question of what is a Democrat, right? The American political parties, especially the Democratic Party, is not like a European a political party where you have like an active membership where you sign up and you pay and there's like internal democratic mechanisms and things like that the democratic party is almost as like a an arm of the state in a very clear way in that it controls the access to the ballot and the democrats in particular have a multiplicity of political forces pulling on them obviously i think the material reason for this is the uh, pr- pr- uh, predominance of big donor money but I think it's, the Democratic Party is highly factionalized, and that factionalization means that it's difficult to consolidate because the centrists will not consolidate behind a left-wing political candidate, and they base the, the progressive wing is always torn between a kind of rejectionist politics, which in effect allows the Republicans to uh, come to power and pull politics to the right, or rallying behind the centrist Democrats, which again, pulls the politics to the right. So we're, you know, the, the, because the progressive wing, the left wing of, of politics in America is so weak, we're in totally screwed situation. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Thank you so much for being with us here at Our Common Ground. We try to make sure that you are safe in the Truth Sanctuary. Tonight, we're focusing on a theme, As America Fails, Finding Solidarity. And our guest is Dr. Dejean Bajalan, and we thank him so very much. And you heard him as we came back in, talking about the Democratic Party, and we're going to, in this second hour, talk more about the Joseph Biden administration and the myriad of rights crises that we face as a nation and specifically around how they will impact 
uh, black communities and black people, poor people and working class people all over this country. Our number is 347-838-9852 if you'd like to join in this conversation with uh, Dejean Bajalan. And we will take your calls when you call in. Make sure that you hit that number one so that I will be able to know that you want to talk and not just listen. Also, I want to um, uh, emphasize or announce that TruthWorks Network, which is the sister channel to our com- of our Common Ground uh, Media, um, is going to begin and has in production, If America Fails, The Coming Tyranny. It is a 12-week discussion series based on the writing, uh, the story written by Margaret Atwood, The Handmaid's Tale, which talks of, which speaks to a dystopian society at the end of a civil war in the United States where there was a takeover of the by the Republic of Gilead. And we'll be telling you more and more about it. We're going to be doing a sneak preview with some very special guests. Uh, the way the series will work is that there will be a panel on TruthWorks, uh, on, we're going to premiere this on YouTube. Um, Odom is a senior producer for this 12-week series, uh, If America Fails, and we want to ask you to pass on this information to others so that we can have a robust discussion of what happens to a failed democracy and the potential of what we find in The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, And we're asking the question, can it happen here? And if you have an answer, the answer is, the, the next question is, are you sure? You can find us at ifamericafails.wordpress.com or truthworksnetwork.com or even at ourcommonground.com. We want to ask you to follow TruthWorks at TWN Talk on Twitter where loads of information will be. And, I mean, we're, we're looking at Michelle has been able to garner some terrific guests uh, for this series where the, the, the will be a panel and then an opportunity for people, fans of the story, people who sit, concerned citizens uh, will be able to call in and have discussions. So look for that and uh, don't forget to follow us at... Our Common Ground on Facebook, we have nine pages, uh, all focused on very different themes, and TruthWorks has network as its Facebook page, as well as you can follow us at Janice OCG on Twitter. Dejean, thank you so very much uh, for 
uh, being with us here tonight. You, you're, I, I like the way, I, I really love the way that you calmly talk about uh, the destruction that is going on in this country. And what I want to try to focus on in this hour is the idea of what the what American citizens are facing now. Uh, we know what happened in Texas. We've got a problem with a politically biased Supreme Court, um, a crooked Supreme Court. We need to start saying that. We need to stop saying. Um, uh, we need to. We need to use language in a way that helps us to resist so that when you say America is failing and becoming a fascist nation, you you say it so that people will ask you, why are you saying that? And you can have a discussion about it, you see. Uh-huh. Uh, when you say that uh, the Supreme Court is a corrupt criminal enterprise run by white nationalists and and a, and a and a corrupt criminal undertaking in this country people will ask you why are you saying that you know uh, most most black people are walking around and saying oh yeah the supreme court i don't like clarence thomas well what the hell that that does nothing they do not understand what trump appointments meant not only in terms of who ended up in the court, on the bench, uh, at, at, at every federal level, but it means that some other forces are at play here. Dejean, help me with this. Sure. Well, you know, I would, let me use an analogy. My, you, everybody in America, you know, your viewers probably heard of the country of Iran, right? You've heard, of, you've heard about the Ayatollah, the undemocratic system that they have in Iran, the way that Iran operates, right? You know, that Iran is a terrorist nation. Iran is this. Iran is that. Now, I want to preface what I'm saying by saying I am definitely not a supporter of the Iranian regime. But allow me to draw some interesting parallels between the way that the Islamic Repu- uh, Republic of Iran operates, uh, a, a country that is demonized as undemocratic, fascistic, blah, 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 in the American press, and the way the United States operates. In Iran, they have elections, right? They elect people to the parliament. They elect the president, right? But they have a judiciary uh, that is controlled by the ulama, the scholars of Islam, right? And these guys can basically decide if something is legal or something is not legal. And they aren't accountable to anybody. Now, in America, it's not exactly the same system as the United States, but you were talking about the Supreme Court. We are looking at a Supreme Court and a judiciary in this country that is not accountable to anybody, right? That is appointed by people who do not even win the majority of the votes and then appoint people for lifetime positions who can basically twist the law as they see fit according to their ideological uh, you know, um, justifications to make them do what they want, right? And this is just one 
aspect of the undemocratic system that exists in the United States. Now, the, the American system has always been problematic, but we are seeing a greater, a huge grab for power on behalf of a shrinking conservative minority, but a minority that is disciplined and ready to play hardball. And we see this because we have what I like to call a Republican Supreme Court, right? Because that's what it is, right? All this yeah. nonsense about, like, judges are impartial, judges are this. No. The only judges that, are, that seem to be ever impartial and that seem ever to be, like, playing by the institutional rules are the ones that Democrats appoint. And half the time, they're making judgments that sabotage their own political power, whereas the Republican judiciary is playing a political game, and it knows it's playing a political game. The, 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 the people the Democrats seem to appoint and the Democratic Party's judicial establishment lives in a fantasy world where they're still in debate club at law school, right? Whereas the Republicans are playing a real game of, like, we are going to make up justifications for what we want to do. If we like something, we will do it. If we don't like something, we will, we will find a reason we won't do it. For example, with this uh, case in Texas, right? The Supreme Court refused to weigh in. You know, they, were, they said, we will wait for you know, a lawsuit or something like that. Because that's an issue that they, they're quite happy with. Imagine if, some, imagine if the, the legislature in Missouri, for some reason, decided to take the private property of uh, a businessman and you know uh, make it a public you know make it make it some kind of public uh, factory do you think the supreme court would suddenly wait for that no because that's something that they would not want to uh, have so you know we live in a country where you already have an unresponsive and undemocratic congress that is uh, governed by the the senate which is rigged towards rural conservative states in the united states and then on top of that, you have a filibuster, which means nothing can ever done, be done. Then you have a Congress, which is gerrymandered, which you can have some popular representation, but the Republicans control the states. Therefore, they draw the maps, and so they can make sure that you know, they, they can maximize their vote. Then you have the states, where the Republicans you know, uh, have uh, successfully controlled everything. And you have the judiciary. And then you, know, then you have... Uh, 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 Democrats thinking that, oh, all we need to do is win the presidency, and then suddenly they find that their presidents can't do everything. So, so we're living in a country where there is one political party that is, is, is working to institute and control its political power. And that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the, the indicators, uh, and it didn't come in the Trump administration, and we have to understand this, is it came in another administration where the Supreme Court removed the most vital part of the Voting Rights Act, and that's mm-hmm. Section 5. And, and nobody is talking about that. But, 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 but here is the thing that I think people ought to be paying attention to. The idea that the New York uh, law enforcement, um, through Cy Vance and through the New York Attorney General, were coming after Trump, 
okay? And this is not a conspiracy. This is just some critical rationale, critical thinking through what has happened. And the machine decided that it needed Albany to try to fix all of these things. And they went after Andrew Cuomo. Now, most of you who regularly listen to this show know that um, I am not, Letitia James, thank you, um, Otis, um, I am not a big fan of Andrew Cuomo. He was my boss for two years. So I'm not a big fan, and I'm sure he's guilty. But it is interesting how the machine moved on that. It is interesting how the machine is moving in the, 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 at the state level on voter, voter suppression, on redistricting. And there is a law which defines what gerrymandering is, and nobody seems to care about that, that you have what happened in Georgia uh, it, did they did they file any charges against Lindsey Graham yet? I, and I this don't know. machine, we have no, they haven't. Those rhetorical questions. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and you have to see how the machine that DeGene just described is ready on the ready. And DeGene, my my question is, why aren't we ready? That's a good question. That is the million-dollar question, right? You know, I think uh, one of the character, you know, characteristics of modern society is that, you know, we're so distracted with so many things. We, you know, we feel powerless. We see, we see. Let me put it this way: we see in this society that there is no accountability for certain people, right? If you're a poor person, whether you're white or black whether you're a, you know, a poor person or a working-class person or even, even a relatively comfortable middle-class person. If you do something wrong, they throw the book at you, right? They will put you in jail. This country has more people in jail than Stalin had in jail in 1953, right? It has a huge mass incarceration uh, problem. You know, they'll put you in jail, and, and not only will they put you in jail, they will ruin your life. Because you will get out of jail and you will have a, a felony charge and you won't be able to get a job. And then you're in this vicious cycle where you are at the bottom of society. However, if you are in the political or economic elite of this country, you can commit crimes. You can do anything, right? You know why this QAnon uh, thing is so popular in America amongst the political right? Because there's an element of truth to it. You know, when you look at what uh, uh, Jeffrey Epstein was up to for years. For years, no accountability. And, you know, Jeffrey Epstein uh, apparently killed himself. We didn't, you know, that's the, the conspiracy and all that thing. But the people who were involved in that, we, don't, we aren't going to know. They're not going to be held accountable, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. we, see the, we see a society where, and, and not, not only that, look at the war in Afghanistan. We were lied to, right? Was anybody, we were lied to about the war in Iraq. We were lied. Was anyone held accountable for that? No. We were lied to about 
you know, Afghanistan by the generals. Are any of them held accountable? Oliver North literally armed an enemy of the United States and, uh, and did all kinds of uh, illegal shenanigans. He has a TV show now, right? So there is no accountability. So you're, you're a regular person in the country. You're like, whoa, I don't want to deal with that. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to watch Netflix, have a cup of tea, you know, and take it easy and try not to worry about the world. So we retreat into ourselves. You know, we retreat into celebrity culture. We retreat into movies. We retreat into video games, right? Because we feel, uh, we feel powerless. We feel frustrated. And, you know, there's only so long you can be angry about something, right? You know, you can be mad at something. You can, you could be active, but at some point you get tired and you're like, you know what? I just want to live my life. I just want to just make my way and do my things. And I think part of the reason is the, uh, is this feeling, which I, I think many Americans, you know, it doesn't matter what race you are, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter where you live in the country, just a feeling that, you know, there's one rule for the regular people and there's another rule for the elite. And that, mean, and that is, a, and that whatever we try, those people in the elite position will always find a way to pervert our victories and win and they'll, you know, they'll, they'll always find a way to, to, to rig the system in, 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 in their favor. And, you know, this comes to the question, you know, like Bernie Sanders was a hope for many people on the left, but he got beat. And many people went out of that demoralized, feeling hopeless. And uh, I think it's a very difficult question because the American system seems so powerful and entrenched that it is really hard to, you know, it's really hard to have hope. And I completely understand why people you know, just don't want to think about politics. They did a study, I think it was at Harvard, it may have been Princeton, a couple of years back where they they wanted to see, you know, like if America was a democracy in terms of the kind of, in terms of the relationship between what people want and what the government does. And they discovered there was like very little uh, correlation between what opinion polls say that American people want and what what the government actually does. And they're, you know, they're permanently lying to us, right? Look at someone like Joe, you know, look just even on a really stupid thing. Do you remember those $2,000 checks? Joe Biden's like, you're going to get you $2,000 checks. And then suddenly after the election, it's like, oh, we already gave you $400. Uh, here's uh, $1,600. It's like, no, no, you didn't say you were going to give us the $1,600. You said you were going to give us the $2,000. So basically just lied to us over $400. And then said, oh, no, yeah. you know, it's, it's just this endless, you know, yeah, is he, yeah. Is it's an endless demoralization. It, 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 it is. It is not a small thing, but it is the small things. It's the the, the million cuts. But one of the things uh, that we talk a, a lot about here at our common ground is how we begin to fashion some aspirations for a new generation. I know I've been around this place uh, for a little over 50 years, and I particularly uh, have not ever felt as desperate for answers. There's always been a way in organizing and in some form of activism um, to get to at least the table 
mm-hmm. of uh, discussion and, 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 and negotiation. And there is no way uh, for, you know, average people to, 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 to begin to do that. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty much at a loss. You know, like a, a simple, not a simple, but a complex question, which is very personal for most people, is the issue of police in schools. Mm-hmm. There hasn't been a major move on police in schools. Uh, redistricting, which happens at both the local and state levels, there is no outrage around that. You know what? What these people are be operating? This machine is operating in a lawless way. Mm-hmm. I completely and agree. It, and and it seems as though. We are not putting, we don't have a handle on it. I have never lived in an era where there is so, there's a lot of shouting and, and, and raging, but there is very little logical, strategic resistance going on. I mean, the idea that Nina Turner was lost the race in Ohio, in Ohio, it is just mind-boggling to me. Yes, I mean, I completely. You know, there's a, there's a lot of things that are demoralizing because it's a frustration, right? It's a it, it's a frustration because we have to. We're not clear-eyed about the problems. We have so many problems, we don't even know how to like order what's the most important problem. You know, there were so many problems mm-hmm. in this society that have been building up for years and have been have kind of coalesced and come together at this critical moment in history that we have so much it's like looking at a kid, you know, you take a kid to a, a toy shop and it's looking around like crazy because there's so many uh, uh, toys for it to look at and it doesn't even know where to begin and that's where I see the left. At the same time we feel demoralized because when we do try to do something, it's almost as if it has the opposite effect. You think about the urban rebellions and the protests that took uh, took place after the extrajudicial execution of George Floyd by the American security services. The um, uh, the process the, the the protests resulted in people you know like politicians arguing for more money for police right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It had the opposite effect. Or, we look at we look at our leaders. We look at the leaders. Look at someone uh, like Tomika Marillary who led the women's march against her. Now she's selling us Cadillacs. You know, it's like it's what's going on, and it drives you crazy, yeah. right? It uh, drives you crazy. Or 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 that you just uh, more recent history. You just had uh, a group of uh, con- uh, U.S. representatives who led the resistance to the termination of the eviction moratorium, and they slept outside on uh, in the Capitol parking lot overnight, and um, two weeks, three weeks later, the Supreme Court allows the moratorium to expire. Of course. 
Exactly. This is why we need that. This is why we need uh, to, like you said, we need. We don't just need one Cory Bush. We need like 350 Cory Bushes in the Congress. People mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. are people. People who have who have experience in life, and you know, uh, who 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 are there's going to be enough of them to actually like do something and take uh, and take power. I don't think Congress is the only place, but we need we need people like her who are willing to like sleep outside of the con- uh, Congress and fight uh, fight even and even when they lose, they keep on they get up. And they, re, you know, keep fight. fighting. Keep another us- day to fight again. But exactly. but but here here is part of the problem, and and part of the problem is that Cory Bush came out of uh, a very well structured, well organized activism, mm-hmm. and we're not seeing this. You know, like I must get four emails a day begging for money for Val Demings, who's running for Senate uh, from Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, and and while she is clearly polling really well, she's not getting the money. So it, it's, it's one or the other for working and poor people. We've got to either get money out of the elections, or we've got to give a dollar, give $2, give $3. I mean, we've got to make those kinds of decisions on a, on a practical level. But mm-hmm. uh, we, don't ha- we don't have a machine, DeGene. That is the problem. We don't yeah, have no, a machine I... that can move, that can be so threatening to the power source that they would be afraid not to expand, not to get rid of the filibuster. And, I mean, there's clear evidence that the Supreme Court responds to the will of the people. And we have to admit that they only respond to the will of some people. Right. No, I I I I completely agree. There needs to be an organizational infrastructure, and uh, for people like me on the left side of politics, uh, and people who are advocating for poor, for poor and working people, we're at a we're at a structural disadvantage. When you do right wing politics, the, the 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 manna from heaven rains down upon you, right? And there's always a crazy billionaire willing to give money to an even crazier group of people on the political right. On the political left, we don't have that, right? There are billionaires and millionaires who will give to centrist Democrats or who, who may give to, to movements that they don't see as perhaps affecting, you know, affecting their uh, bottom line. But, you know, we don't have the money. But what we do have is the people, right? We do have the infrastructure. Look, Val Demings is running a traditional campaign where you try, you spend money, and you try and buy elections, right? You, try, you, you know, because it's a war with money. But you can short-circuit that traditional model of money-based politics by people, right? If you have a mobilized base of activists, you don't have to pay them to go out and support you. You know, Absolutely. they will go out, they will, pay that, they, they will spend their time, right? 
But because we have a corporate dominated uh, uh, system where people pay by corporate rules, then of course it's a game of money. But if you actually had a program that pe- that people were invested in, that that you tr- you 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 promised these deliverables, and, and you and you work to build the infra- organizational infrastructure for that, you you could short circuit that system through sheer force of numbers, right? So you know, like uh, I, you know, maybe I'm wrong about this, you know, but. I'm under the impression that, you know, Nina Turner had plenty of money in Ohio. The problem was not the money. The problem was the organization. And this COVID is not good for us because the, on the left side of politics, we have to rely on going door to door to convince people, like to speak, build personal relationships, build trust, and, and, and build a movement and infrastructure. Whereas the right and the center of politics just throw money at a problem, right? Just do some adverts, just do some mailers, do these kind of things. But the type of politics we have to uh, create, should, we shouldn't be playing by the same rules and the same game that the people who have led us this way are playing by. We should try and build a new type of politics uh, which involves people power, people power mm-hmm. that can over, uh, overrun the, the, the power of corporate uh, money and the donor class. We've got only a, sh- uh, a little bit of more time, and before uh, I really want to hear, before you go, I really want to hear what your projections are about, uh, are about how this takes us into the 22 midterms as well as into 2024. If we, um, uh, if we. Uh, able to <laughs> to last that long. <laughs> maybe yeah, they'll just good, call off the 2024 the, elections and appoint a president. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I mean, I think uh, I think it's it's always difficult to predict elections, and I'll tell you why. In America, you know, because the 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 there's a big gap between you know the the what people vote for and what they get. Uh, because of the way the system is structured, it's always so hard to tell, you know, because you might have, you 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 might have three million more people voting for a presidential candidate than the other guy wins, right? We know that story from history, right? So I don't think, in terms of absolute numbers, there's not much shift in American politics. You know, people who like Trump, they're dug in, and they still love Trump. They still love the Republicans. People who hated Trump, people who are backing the Democrats, they're by and large all dug in, and they're off the same opinion. What's changed, if you ask me, is the Republicans are busy gerrymandering, and I think that gerrymandering will probably, unless something really pushes out the Democratic uh, Democratic turnout, if there's something really triggering that pushes them out, like Trump. You know, Trump was great for the Republicans, but he was better for the Democrats because he was an easy way to get people to come out to vote, right? There's something triggering for the Democrats, unless there's something really triggering for the Democrats. I think the Republicans may well take back the House, right, because they've rigged the system in such a way that it's a lot easier for them to do that. They've done some voter suppression here. They've done some gerrymandering there. And all you have to do is just do a little bit of this, that, and the other, a little bit of of magic on the electoral system, and you you, you you can fix it in your favor. Now, one of the interesting things is this Texas decision. This Texas law may backfire 
And I get a feeling that the, the Democrats are secretly, at least some people in the Democratic Party leadership, are secretly happy about this uh, decision uh, of uh, this, uh, this um, new law passed in Texas uh, uh, about abortion. Because why? Because they think this could be their, you know, their cultural issue to drive people out. You know, the Republicans have been crying about this, that, and the other. They had like first they had cancel culture. Now it's all about critical race theory. You know, they're hyping their people out to come out. And the Democrats, they need something equally as big because nobody's going. Nobody's super excited about like. I don't know Joe Biden. I mean, who's really enthusiastic about Joe Biden? The only pe- the the only person who generates less enthusiasm than Joe Biden is probably Kamala Harris. But this is uh, <laughs> you know this is uh, you know this is the this is the thing. They need something to drive people out. But as it stands, I think the Republicans have a good shot uh, at winning the House back, even if the vote tallies don't change in an absolute sense. I think they've just fixed the system just nice enough for them. 2024, it's going to be a different. It's going to depend who, it's going to depend who the uh, Republicans run, and it's going to depend uh, who the Democrats run. Right? You know, uh, if Trump runs again, I think Trump. You know, I don't know. I don't know if Trump can win again because he really does trigger people to turn out. But if they run someone like Ron DeSantis, I think he might even have a better shot. Right? And I'm sure you're well yeah, familiar. I about agree. I agree about that. I think, I think that DeSantis has a big shot, a, law, a really good shot at it in 2024. And and if they run Kamala Harris in 2024, I don't think she's going to do very well because I don't know I don't know who she appeals to uh, beyond um, news anchors on MSNBC and uh, upper class uh, upper class white liberals. Yeah, to be to well, be I frank. Th- I think right. you're right, and she and she has lost. Uh, it seems to me that she has lost lots of luster uh, as yeah. vice president. Uh, she's not very. She, she, she's not very good at the job. No, she's 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 not very good at the job. But one of the things that I am hoping is that we get organi- We do get organized on mm-hmm. the gerrymandering issue. You can take gerrymandering challenges into the courts uh, in some of these key areas. Uh, specifically, gerrymandering uh, challenges have been won in Florida. Uh, they have been won in Tennessee. They have been won in um, Pennsylvania. North Carolina. That's right. So, uh, you know, it's almost a gene like I'm really searching and searching for this solidarity. I'm searching for a cause that both Democrats and independents can fall behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... Um, I'm 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 looking for people to start suing some of these state legislators, um, and 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 state legislation um, bodies, uh, some of these governors. I, I think when you you know I I come from the from the generation through my through through SNCC and the Black Panther Party, uh, where when you come for me. I'm coming for you, and I don't. I, I just don't have the sense that 
independence and and left people under and 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 I just don't have the sense that re- people who ought to be resisting understand that notion mm-hmm. of you know they they're going with this bullshit. Um, you hit low and I hit high or whatever the hell that was, but uh, it, it it's very it's not only. It, 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 it's not that it, it's not only annoying, but it's enraging. Yes, that I agree. People who hold freedoms and human rights uh, as as precious are not ready for the for the for the for this these challenges. And, and and that they're giving up. And I think you're absolutely right that people are saying, hell, Jesus, all of this is too much for me. And they're, and they're giving way. And we have a chattering class coming out of the ivory towers and academia where people who are writing books, writing publications, starting podcasts are not doing any organizing. They're just... Uh, at the mouth, as my mother would say, just at the mouth. So it, it's worrisome. It's um, it, it's a threat that I think is at the heart of democracy failing in this country. And one of the things that we do not do well, and that is helping, giving people the language, helping them to understand the strategies and how they are impact our daily lives. I mean, black people are not talking about too much as a core, as a central issue, the fear you feel. I mean, the fear you feel over the, the 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 surging white nationalism and white supremacy that's going on in this country. Um, the insurrection, and I know we only got a little bit of time, but I want, I want people to understand to the extent that the domestic terrorism that happened at our Capitol on January 6th is 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 fundamental to everything that else that is happening. Yeah, I think I think the the violence that happened uh, on January the sixth is the logical conclusion of the political narrative that is being pushed by the conservative right. And why do I say that? If if you believe that your democracy is being stolen, now of course you know that Joe Biden rigged the election is nonsense. But if you believe that, right? What would be the political action you would take if you believed that someone was in the process of rigging the presidential election and seizing power illegally? Anything's justified, right? You know. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and and mm-hmm, this, this, mm-hmm. this is this is what these people have been told. That there is a new reactionary nationalism, a new reactionary nationalist coalition being created in this country. At its core. Uh, what I, you know, at its core, you know, it has white nationalists in it, of course, but at its core is what I call soft white nationalists, who are white nationalists who like Candace Owens, right? And 
this new coalition has a place for, you know, some members of the minority community, right? It has like a mem- it has a little place for some Latinos. It has a place for some black people. They're building this coalition centered around a cult of personality and a culture war. Uh, and they, they, they're, they're using all kind of rhetoric to, 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 to consolidate this new base, right? You know, they don't, need to, they don't need to win all the black people over, but if they can win like 20% of them, that's enough, right? That's enough to game over for Democrats. It's over, right? Yep, yep. And, yep. You're right. And, and they, they will get this group together, and it's going to be a bit difficult to keep them together because you're going to have like the Hodgkins twins, twins next to David Duke but, and Larry Elder. But it's, you know, they're yeah. going to work it out. And they're yeah. going to focus, instead of uh, focus their hatred on the liberals, right? Yeah. On, on the, on the yeah. takers, yeah. on the people who are lazy. And that's what they're going to do. And January the 6th is a product of the winner-take-all and the like life-or-death rhetoric the right wing is saying and the things they're saying that the liberals are doing which ironically is what they are doing you know exactly. they're saying the liberals are the stealing is- the elections yeah sorry yeah liberals are stealing the elections right <laughs> they're winning all over the place the gene it's been a, a real pleasure to have this conversation uh with you and thank you so very much you're going to have to come back um, you probably know that I am retiring in January. Our common ground will continue, I hope, uh, with some other people. <laughs> I hope if so, too. Like it's to been a real honor. More, <laughs> if you'd like to hear more from the Gene, you can join the This Is Revolution podcast. He is one of their outstanding contributors, and we hope that you will Subscribe and support This Is Revolution Podcast with Jason Miles and Pascal Robert, uh, the Our Common Ground interlocutor. Dejean, thank you so very much. And for those of you out there, thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. And as I always say, every Saturday, 10 p.m., it's the Truth Sanctuary, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I think it has to do with organized greed, organized hatred, and organized corruption. Not just in the White House, but it's the ways in which Wall Street domination, the ways in which the Pentagon, military and money, Big military and money have come together and are beginning to suck out the rich energies of one of the great democratic experiments in the modern world, the USA, and all of its flaws. Democratic elements and democratic practices seem to be so weak and feeble. Well, I think America has to acknowledge itself as an empire, make the connection between the the militarizing that's taking place domestically, police, mass incarceration, and the 800 military bases and the 211 interventions in 67 countries since 1945. That connection between militarism abroad, militarism internally, needs to be wrestled with something that Martin Luther King Jr. understood very well before his death in 1968. The 5th of November forever in our memory. 
His hope was to remind the world that fairness, justice, and freedom are more than words. They are perspectives. So if you've seen nothing, if the crimes of this government remain unknown to you, then I would suggest that you allow the 5th of November to pass unmarked. But if you see what I see, if you feel as I feel, and if you would seek as I seek, then I ask you to stand beside me. And together we shall give them a 5th of November that shall never, ever be forgotten. Thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground. For all of you that have joined us in our chat room, we thank you as well. I'm Janice Grant. Join us each Saturday at Our Common Ground. I'll be listening for you, speaking truth to power and ourselves.